the Cambridge Marketing Podcast with Kiran Kapoor. Brought to you by Cambridge Marketing College. See their range of courses and apprenticeships at marketingcollege.com. Hello and welcome. Today we are talking all about chocolate and confectionery. My guest is David Hill, MD of Kokoda, which is a company that focuses on the overseas marketing of products in chocolate, confectionery and biscuits. David, welcome. Um, We've got to start with you describing your business because I suspect you have a, a business that most people would love to be involved in. Yes, so Kokoda is a business I set up in 2004 after about 10 years in the sort of chocolate biscuit and confectionery business. Um, And I set up partly as a lifestyle choice rather than any sort of great entrepreneurial kingdom building. I can't remember the right word, but um, um, empire building method. Um, And what I do effectively is I act as a freelance export manager for originally British companies in the sector that are too small to have their own full-time export manager. So I take these products and I try and find overseas markets for them where they're not selling and try and develop those overseas markets step by step by step, bit by bit, um, to, to, to get their brands not just on shelves in the UK, but, but further beyond that in Europe, in, in the Middle East, in North and South America, uh, Asia, Australia, New Zealand, etc., and all around the world. So it's really the, the easiest thing to sort of, the easiest way to encapsulate it is as a freelance export manager. But you know, as you know, Kira, my background is, is, is sales and marketing very much. My degree is marketing. I'm a fellow of the um, Chartered Institute. Um, and I think it's a more involved task than really just going along with a brochure and a few samples and meeting someone on the other side of the world and say, hey, guys, do you want to buy some of this? So you started back in 2004. So my goodness, you've seen some changes. And we will come on to that um, a bit later because I think changes have possibly sure. got faster in the last few years. Um, yep. You said developing export markets step by step. So what are the steps? Yep. By virtue of the brands that I work with being too small to have a full-time export manager, you know, the initial approaches could be perceived as sort of taking a niche brand into a market. Um, And that will mean that you have to understand the correct positioning of the brands that you're presenting to a potential uh, buyer overseas. So let's take, for example, you know, a, a range of luxury handmade chocolates such as Holdsworth chocolates produced up in, in the Peak District. I can go to a market, well, I've been to these markets many times, and I will look on the shelf. What are the key players in those markets? Um, not just the what I refer to as power brands like Lindt or Ferrero or, or Green and Blacks and, and brands like that and some of the Belgian brands, Godiva, um, but also some of the more niche speciality brands, smaller brands, typically of a slightly more premium price and premium positioning than that, and look at, you know, would these, would my product, would Holdsworth chocolates fit on the shelf here? What would be the cost structure if, if um, you know, if I was appointing these markets? And by and large, one goes to an importer in the market who has hopefully been well established for a number of years and is handling similar but not competing brands and products um, and saying, I've got this range. I think it's, you know, has potential in the retailers which I've been visiting in your market. I understand you've already got a trading relationship with those with those uh, retailers. 
let's discuss an opportunity for, for getting, getting it into the market. So in terms of developing the market, you know, the first step is to, to understand the market, understand the competitive set, understand the retail landscape, cost structures involved, and then get to meet the importers that are effectively bringing those products into the market when, when the products are not domestic, um, and, and supplying them to those retailers. And in terms of development, um, one would probably start at the flagship uh, retailers um, that have the most profile. Now, it may not be huge volumes to begin with, and if we, if we think about this in reverse, um, if I was bringing in a European product into the UK, the flagship retailers would be stores like Selfridges, um, Liberties, Harvey Nichols, um, which is really only a handful of stores, but you're in very, you know, it gets the brand into some very high profile stores. And then these stores are visited by delicatessen owners, other retail buyers on slightly larger chains, um, food service people or other, you know, other under, other independent retailers and, and retail chains who will see this. And with a bit of luck, they'll say, oh, I've seen such and such a brand in Harvey Nichols and I saw it again in Selfridges or, or, or John Lewis Liberty or or a potentially very high-profile delicatessen in London, like Partridge's, and we want it in our shop. And then they will look on the back of the pack and they say, imported into the UK by you know, Acme Imports Company Limited, um, and make those approaches, while at the same time I'm speaking to Acme Import Company and saying, right, you know, we've had a great start getting those products onto the shelves in Selfridges, Harvey Nichols, and so forth. I think now is a time that you can, you know, having had one season of sales, you can now approach broader distribution um, in terms of stores that um, retail chains that have more stores or a, or a, or a sub distributor that specializes in the independent uh, gourmet sector and you build out like that I, I i see this development process very much as a as a pyramid um, when you're going into a market where you start at the highest profile most prestigious retailers at the top of the pile, like like Harvey Nichols, Nichols, Harrods, Selfridges, and so forth. And then the next tier down will be John Lewis's, um, maybe even Waitrose, and beyond and beyond and beyond. And you and you feed the market from the top with the highest profile further down into the market as the brand garners more traction and more brand awareness within the market. And I think it's very important to start in that manner because the alternative is if I go to a foreign market and I say right I want this brand to be in Aldi well you're never going to be able to move you may get big sales in the first instance but you're you're, you're trying to launch your brand in an inappropriate uh, retail channel and more than that you will never get the, the the retailers who are positioned more highly than the equivalent of a discounter to take a brand so Harrods never look at, at, at uh, discounters shelves and say we want that product in our stores but discounters will look on the shelves at Harrods and say we want a similar product in our stores and it's always a more appropriate route to start at the top in terms of the brand's positioning and the retail channels that you're, you're, you're serving it's always better to start at the top of that pyramid and gradually work with your uh, importing partners in those markets to filter that brand further down to gain more you know, better brand awareness, uh, which leads to better, better brand traction and more sales. Mm -hmm. Greater brand awareness leads to more sales. It's a virtuous circle. Okay, so obviously you're working with very premium products and also some quite specialist yeah. niche products. So they are looking yeah. for 
um, this sort of premium position. I, I do like the idea of using Correct. Harrods as a sort of um, a, a gateway into into the marketplace. I, I'm I'm sure they don't see yes, it like it, that. So I'm. No, no, no they <laughs> would. They, they absolutely. They would very much want sort of exclusivity, and you have to have these discussions with the equivalents of Harrods to say, look, okay, look, if you can guarantee to take X number of references from us, we will give you exclusivity for that first nine, maybe even twelve months before we go further. But yes, it, it is very much starting at the top and working one's way down rather than starting at the bottom, chasing volume and hoping that you'll, you'll, you'll end up covering all bases uh, over time. It, it, it doesn't work that way around, I find. So I assume this also means that for the companies you're working for, presumably they, are, they have limited production, so they're, they're going to be mm. controlled, let's call it controlled production rather than mass market production. So I'm assuming that this also allows them to gradually ramp up the amount that they're creating. Absolutely, Karen. Yeah, um, they're, they're definitely not mass market products. I mean, I have a couple of mass market products, which which I chase, which has a slightly different strategy. Um, but absolutely, one has to be careful. You know, if a company is and typically I work with companies whose turnover is perhaps between one and five or six million pounds here here in the UK. So it's it's unrealistic to sort of go with a with a relatively small company and go to a mass market um, opportunity and say, Hey, we've got this great product. We'd love it to be on your, on the shelves in in your twelve hundred stores because the, the the company in the UK will say, oh my goodness, you know this is this is really, going to be this is going to cripple us, you know, from a cash flow mm -hmm. and from a production point of view. So yes, it has to be managed very very carefully. How you broach that brand, how you broach that market, and how you position that brand and, and direct that brand into the market in in a manageable way, not just for the importers and the market itself. That has to be very appropriate, but absolutely as you say being very sort of conscious of any uh, constraints or limitations that the, the manufacturer themselves might have. Um, there are all sorts okay. of other seasonal aspects into that, but they'll be producing Christmas stock now for, for the UK, but the Christmas stock for Australia was produced in July when they're slightly less busy. So you can, you can adjust, um, you know, you can, you can adjust that, you know, you can, you can actually use, markets that take a lot longer to physically transport the goods to you can actually produce those products when you're generally quieter in your uh in your factories producing for for, for, for your domestic or, or nearer markets than the uk yeah that's interesting it never occurred to me that of course you of course you can do that because you have a you have a physically you have to transport your product from a to, from a to b I mean, you, yes i i can see that so with the whole world to sort of aim at um how do you choose which marketplaces to go? This is always the bit that fascinates me most about exporting. It's like I've got an entire world out there. Where do you where do you start? How do you choose? Things have changed radically, and perhaps we'll come on to that um, you know, during the course of this conversation. When I started back in two thousand and four, and I and I had oodles and oodles of contacts of importers um, around around the world because I was working for an importer in the UK. So I would meet. You know, I'd go to an international trade conference um, being held by one of the brands that uh, my employers were bringing into the UK, and you would meet meet your opposite numbers from all over the world, be it Germany, North America, Australia, Asia, or wherever. Um, so I had all these contacts when I started, but my my initial focus was very much within within Europe, um, where my contacts were strongest, where I could jump on a plane relatively easily and just go over for a day or two uh, to see these people, and and so for the first. 10, 12 years, my, well, maybe less than that, but, but my, my initial approaches were within Europe. They're e they were, 
easier to manage in terms of exporting to that was you know being in the single market and a customs union so so i would i would start my focus in in western europe um but had certainly built out you know quite early on from say 2008 sort of three or four years in i'd built out to north america as well um and was picking up a few bits and bobs in asia and um further afield than that that's process has has obviously sort of been turned on its head since 2016 and subsequently from the beginning of 2021 when the transition period finished um and it's it it, it took some time you know for, for one that's so sort of had such a heart of european business um it took some time to realize you know what this is getting harder and harder to supply the eu markets now and and my focus is now much I wouldn't say much more. I mean, I, I still have some very important customers in Europe, but my focus is much more at looking at the economic indicators that are going on around the world. Now, of course, we've had we've had three major disruptions to to to, to, the, to the economic environment over the last few years. One of which is uniquely British, um, and that has shifted that focus. And so, you look at economic indicators. You you, you think back to. What have I seen on on retailer shelves in those markets? Um, what connections do I have in those markets? What contacts do I have? Have I been or have I been recommended? Do they seem appropriate? I look at the importer's website. What brands are they already working with? Is there um, are there complementary brands rather than conflicting brands? Um, how well do I know them? And it has to be a slightly I mean, if I, if I use the word a scattergun approach, it probably isn't as it probably makes it sound very unscientific. There's a sort of sense of gut feeling of where I think the products will do well from what I've seen over the years, where, where I've got those where I've got those contacts. And importantly, where the Department for International Trade, the government um, uh, department, are able to provide a little bit of extra support or extra introductions and, and things like that. And then you also have to think about horrible things like ease of access to a market. So uh, there's, a, there's a few things in there I want to go back to. You said yeah, three sorry. economic <laughs> issues. That's fine. You said three yeah. economic issues. Now, one was uniquely British, which is clearly Brexit. Absolutely. The other one I'm guess, another one I'm guessing is the war in Ukraine. Correct, correct. And so what the, was third the third one? Is, the third one is COVID and the pandemic. Oh, um, I forgot that little thing, yes. So, yeah, that little thing, which, which we've all been told to forget. Um, Yes, and, and I think each each one of those three has presented quite unique problems and yet equally impacts on one of those, the impacts of one of those three can have impacts, you know, which are exacerbated by other ones within those three. Um, and I'm more, you know, be delighted to sort of talk through each in turn because, because they, they, they have all presented very, very severe challenges over the last you know, number of years. Let's, let's come back to Brexit, because I think that's going to be possibly the, the one that affects your marketplace the most. Yep. Let's talk about yes. COVID. So what was the impact of COVID, particularly on what you sell? Because I could imagine, sure. in fact, I know, and I have the I have the hips to prove it, that when you're stuck in <laughs> lockdown, it's very easy to turn to confectionery, chocolate and business sectors because it's a bit depressing. Absolutely. Yeah, no, we're, we're very much in the sort of comfort food sector, the comfort goods sector and um, affordable luxury sector. So so that one would have thought, you know, one would have thought would be, um, you know, quite, quite a quite a, a safety net. Mm. However, COVID presented quite serious problems. And I 
uh, let me try and think of the, the key ones. Um, number one was that, you know, global economies just went dormant uh, mm -hmm. and not quite into shutdown, but they really, really closed down. And there was a real sort of battening down of the hatches. And, and what that meant was that retailers were, for example, having to close their stores. Um, so if their stores were closing in March 2020, they might still have products left over, a little bit of hangover products from Valentine's, but certainly they would have their Easter stock. Mm -hmm. um, and when their stores suddenly closed, they thought, oh, my goodness, you know, we're overstocked here. We need to try and flush this through either online or, you know, however we can or by discounting or, or whatever to try and get that through. So that was that was one impact. So so retailers, although these are not people I would deal with directly, my importers mm -hmm. and, who are effectively my customers will be dealing with these retailers and the retailers were very much focused on clearing stock that was already in their systems and had a shelf life ticking away on it um, and worried about how they were going to maintain sufficient cash flow for their operations to, to stay afloat. And they were also were unsure when their stores would reopen. So it made them very reluctant to commit to buying more seasonal products for Christmas 2020 um, until right, you know, very, very late in the day. So when those decisions had previously been made, you know, May, June, July, they were not being made until August, September, October of 2020, which was almost too late. Um, but also coming back to your the, the, the very pertinent point you make about um, comfort foods, confectionery is largely in, in, in the impulse category. And when the stores were reopening, they were often uh, reopened with arrows on the floors of the stores. So mm -hmm. a consumer would go into the equivalent of John Lewis um, with the intention of buying a new set of pots and pans or, or, or mm -hmm. duvet covers or whatever. Um, and whereas historically, pre-COVID times, they would walk into the equivalent of Selfridges and they would wander around the whole store mm -hmm. and they would wander into the confectionery area mm -hmm. and they would see something that they, they were driven to buy through impulse. Um, and so we would achieve sales by that. And then they would go on and mm -hmm. buy their pots and pans and duvet covers. Now, with all the arrows on the floor, of course, that, that sort of deviation from the from the prescribed route that the retailers and safety measures were imposing upon them mm -hmm. meant that they weren't wandering off into, into, into the, confe the confectionery category and buying things on impulse. So, so that naturally inhibited some sales. Um, the other issues uh, that COVID brought, so, so that sort of delayed and subdued sales in 2020 and, and, and to an extent in 2021, although you know, more economies were slowly opening up in 2021, although still 2022, you know, China is effectively closed, um, or the economy is very, very stagnant. Um, Hong Kong is, is effectively closed. Taiwan and Japan are effectively closed. So there's still a long way to go for those markets to, to pick up. And even in markets that are open, again, in Asia, Singapore, Thailand, um, Malaysia, they're still dusting themselves off and saying, right, you know, now finally, you know, we're beginning to get back onto a bit more of an even kill. We can start looking at new products and new things rather than just sort of reverting to type and buying what they knew worked, albeit in, in lesser quantities. So it was the impact of COVID on retail and retail sales, footfall and decision making processes by the retails, which was a major impact for COVID. The other two key impacts on COVID was one, the, the huge disruption to supply chain issues. Um, where things such as packaging were not getting produced and shipped from China. Um, and when they were getting shipped, the cost of containers went up eight, tenfold. So, um, 
you know, if, you, if, if, if part of your competitive strategy was to source packaging or, or other raw materials from overseas, that suddenly became a lot less competitive mm -hmm. and a lot more fraught with complexities and delays and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. And also had a big impact on containers going out of the UK back to back around the world because those costs uh, went up and suddenly we became a lot less competitive, although we weren't alone in that respect. Um, you know, it became a lot less competitive to bring in products from, from other parts of the world. And then the, so, so just um, retail disruption, supply chain disruptions. And thirdly, and, and this is the thing that has really sort of been very frustrating for me, is that, you know, my, my business is very much a, a business where you have to be out there and press the flesh with people. And you have to be at trade shows and you have to be visiting customers and you have to be visiting their retail customers when you go over and see these customers and, and talk about your brands. And with travel so heavily restricted, I just couldn't, I couldn't go anywhere. So, so rather than jumping mm -hmm. on a plane every two or three weeks, I was you know, s stuck in my office for weeks and weeks and months and months and months and end on time, getting more frustrating knowing that uh, these people needed, uh, knowing that these people benefited, benefited from this sort of press the flesh and face-to-face -face meetings, which was simply not you know, simply not possible. And, mm. and even while Europe opened up, um, the, the challenges of supplying Europe, which we will come on to in due course, um, meant that that wasn't necessarily where my priority lay, you know, uh, mm. and my priority was, was, was particularly North America and Australia and, and Asia, where I just couldn't go. And um, there was even a sense that some customers, I remember speaking to a, to a customer in Thailand and saying, you know, I'm looking to come out on such and such a date later in the year. Um, now it turned out that I couldn't in the end, but but there was even this sense from from some markets, and I think this is perhaps more relevant to Asia, where they there was a hesitancy to be seen to invite overseas visitors into the offices. Mm -hmm. You know, this is all a bit irresponsible. Why why are you bringing this person in from 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 Europe? You know, mm -hmm. where, where where COVID is just as rife as it is here. We don't want these people in our offices. So so there was this real sort of pulling down of the draw pulling up of the drawbridge and battening down the hatches mm -hmm. and that 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 sort of combination of those factors um were all driven by covid um were all covid related rather which 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 made life of one of those three factors very 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 tough indeed yeah so so that that was that was the real negative impacts of covid which still now are are lingering on maybe less so in europe but certainly in um in asia um, you know, they're, they're, it, it, it's dragging on. It's really dragging on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that brings us very neatly um, to Brexit. Now, we'll, we will keep this <laughs> one short, but um, I'll try. You, I mean, you've just indicated that the marketplace, mm. perhaps in Europe, was opening up. And of course, that's a marketplace that's now increasingly hard for us to access, I'm yep. assuming. Correct. Correct. So, so, so the opening up, um, you're absolutely right, Kieran. The, the opening up, was really from a travel perspective in that slowly it became that little bit easier to sort of get on a plane and go and to visit a customer in Europe. Um, really, I had found since the referendum result, my existing European business continued, but trying to get anything new into Europe as soon as that uh, uh, result was out in mid-2016, I would be presenting products to people I've known for, for, for years. And they were saying, yeah, we love these products, David, but... Um, we, we can see now that the price works. We can see now there's an opportunity that it will work and, you know, we could, we could get some sales for this. But the, 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 the hesitancy we have is that 
we don't know what the situation is going to be um, post the transition period. So we're very reluctant now to invest our time, energy and money in developing a brand between mid-2016 and the 1st of January 2021, if on the 1st of January 2021 it becomes significantly more complex, more risky, more costly, more onerous um, to do so because that will destroy our market. So I didn't achieve any significant new listings or, or new distribution agreements in Europe since the end of the transition period. Uh, sorry, since the referendum. Um, and then once the transition period finished, so, so going back now 20 months to, to January 2021, when we knew what arrangements we had with our, with our, with our neighbours, um, that was the time you know, we, we frantically sort of rushing around, OK, what paperwork do we now have to collate to supply to Europe? What's the information that has to show on the, on the invoices, etc., etc.? Um, we did a lot of that uh, on this side because uh, we were able to do it from this side. But I wasn't then able, because of COVID, to go out and visit these customers in early 21 and say, right, we've established what we need to do from an export perspective. What we need to sit down and do together with us, with you, is understand what you need to do from an importing perspective. Mm -hmm. um, because every European market has a different importing requirement for a third party. It's not a pan-EU-wide uh, arrangement. So, how how Spain choose, the requirements for Spain to import something from a third party is different from the requirements in Latvia or in Germany or in Scandinavia or you know anywhere else at all. Um, and really, it would have been I you know the the time that I should have been able to go out and visit these European customers and say, right, this is what we can provide on our side. We know this is what we need to provide. What do you need to provide? Those opportunities to go and have those meetings and discussions didn't take place. And, and, and frankly, the EU had moved on since then. And, you know, they were focused on what they were doing. And that was also driven by COVID to an extent. And so by the time I was able to go and visit a lot of these EU customers uh, from the beginning of this year, they've moved on. You know, they said, you know, we tried it for a little bit. It became too complex. We got stuff stuck in customs. The, um, I mean, even at the beginning, Kieran, hauliers were refusing to take bookings to cross the channel, so you couldn't even get uh, goods across or, 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 the, or the prices were, were, were increased immeasurably. So the result is, is that if, if, uh, a, a, if a customer was not buying, I mean, this is a slightly arbitrary figure, but let's say a customer was not buying at least £50,000 worth of goods, then it just wasn't worth their while going through, go, going through all the hoops to continue developing that business. Um, and a lot of my business, because of the niche nature of my products, you know, I'd be getting 8,000 from Netherlands on this brand and another 6,000 on another brand through the same customer and, and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. So collectively, it was quite valuable. Um, but individually, the barriers that were put up after the transition period made it untenable um, to the extent now that I'm down to I'm earning about 15 percent from sales in the EU from what I was earning uh, pre-2016. I mean, that's that's how, how bad wow. the impact is. Yeah. Good yep. grief. Yep. That's that is yep. that is huge. So yeah, the sort of third shock, I, mm. I'm assuming, is the war in Ukraine, which is then Correct. going to cause this global recession. <clears throat> so Correct. I'm asking you slightly with a crystal ball now. How do you think that's going to affect your market? Um, well, it was interesting, actually, I, I you know, having having realised that Europe was 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 going to sort of was, was slowly declining from mid 2016 and then falling fell off a cliff from the beginning of 2021. I had managed to build up some reasonably impressive business through a fantastic partner, London-based partner, 
in Eastern Europe and, and not least Ukraine and Russia. Um, <laughs> so, of course, you know, any sort of makeup oh. from, from EU sales, you know, w- was also devastated. Um, if, I, if I think about these, the, these three impacts, the Brexit, COVID and, 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 and the conflict in Ukraine, I know that COVID will eventually cease to become a thing and we will learn to live with it through, you know, various sort of medical intervention. Um, and, I, you know, I'm confident that eventually, you know, the conflict, and dear God, let's hope, you know, the conflict in Ukraine mm-hmm. will, will also cease in time. Um, the, one of the biggest impacts, there, there are two key impacts that that has had on, on where I sit. The first of those is clearly the sort of impact on energy prices and how energy is being, is being weaponized and pushing um, energy costs up. Now, if you think of a product like shortbread, which I sell a lot of, the, the amount of energy that's required to bake shortbread is, is huge, um, you know, because you're, you're, you've got ovens that are turning away at 180 degrees 24 hours a day. So, so the energy costs have gone up immensely, but also 50% of the world's grain comes from Ukraine and Russia. So shortbread being 50% flour is obviously mm. impacted by the input costs going up. Um, so, so that's that's had major problems particularly on the shortbread but but having said or, or, or more obviously on the shortbread and biscuit categories but interestingly the other the other non biscuit categories that are not using flour but they may be using a little bit of edible oils are also suffering from these huge input costs as well dresses. i'm intrigued with your marketplace because you are dealing with luxury products mm. does mm. that ride out a recession more comfortably than some other products I like to think, I take optimism from from agreeing with that. Yeah, there's this whole sort of element of affordable luxury um, where if you're in, you know, the luxury sector, that could be luxury, which would be, you know, a luxury bar of chocolate that I might sell, which has a retail price of three euros compared to a super yacht that that might have a a, a price of 30 million euros. Um, And I think, I, I, I'm grateful for the fact that, you know, my products can still sell at three euros, or it might be, you know, three euros having gone up from two euros 49, but it can still sell and it is still affordable for, for consumers all around, you know, in the markets that I'm, that I'm selling around the world. Um, so I think I have been relatively well insulated from some of the worst impacts. Um, and it's also... It's not just the comfort goods. There's also it's not just this sort of affordable luxury thing. There's also this sort of comfort goods, and and apparently, mm-hmm. you know, comfort foods as well as things like alcohol and tobacco, tend to be a little bit more res- resilient to economic downturns than other um, other goods that are discretionary spends. David, that's that has been great, and it was it's really good to get an, a a perspective of somebody at the sharp end of of exporting because I, I think it's a really important to see um, theory being put into practice. Mm, so mm, mm. if somebody was sitting here thinking, right, I need to innovate and maybe I want to try yeah. and go for some of those marketplaces, where where do you start? Do you look at, do you look to for um, export managers like you? Do you look for mm-hmm. importers and exporters? Where, do, where does somebody even start if they were interested in exporting? Well, I, I, brilliant question. I think, I think you know, the, the first thing is understand how strong you are in your own market, understand the impact that developing overseas markets may have on your 
production capacity and cost basis and things like that. And you may well take the view that um, you know, additional sales overseas is incremental in income. So you don't necessarily have to amortize your, I'm getting a bit of accounting here, which is <laughs> the other side of the coin from, from marketing. Um, you know, ha what, what the impact is gonna be on your fixed cost. Can you, can you ignore those fixed costs because this is incremental income? So understand your products and where the and, and, and whether, you know, why your product should have that impact, uh, sorry, should have that appeal in an overseas market. And then go and see the markets. Go and see what's on the shelves in those markets, which is easier, obviously, as a consumer good than as, as the industrial good. But go and see what you know what the competitive set is in the market over there, and then make contact with the Department of International Trade, who can put you in with potential um, uh, importers that are working in your sector, and open up discussions with with those with those importers. You can do it in-house without an import, without an export manager if you've got a very, if you've got a competent sales manager, but there are certainly unique um, facets that, that, that export sales require in terms of additional technical specification, pricing structures and, and labeling and uh, export procedures. Um, as we've discussed, have got more onerous in recent years. And, tar and, and from that point, you should be able to tar you know, draw up a target list of, let's say, six key markets that you might want to go for, which, go for, which would be based on, on those factors, scale of the opportunity, ease of access to the market, um, ease of communication with those markets, and so on and so forth. And then build a marketing plan. You know, I would like to get into this market, and as a consumer good, I would like to be in these key stores in year one. And you know, the, the next tier down that pyramid in, in years two and three and so forth, and go and have those discussions. It's not something that can be done without being face-to-face -face, though. I think it's very, very difficult to do on Zoom or on, you know, on the, on the phone or email. And, and the key place to take, to have these discussions are at international trade shows. And even if you're, mar as, as a manufacturer, even if your market is 99% domestic, you would most likely still be going to visit these trade shows overseas um, and having the opportunity to meet importers in that market who might be working in your sector or might be working with similar brands and, um, and you can build up a, 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 a good network of potential customers that you can then, that you can then, um, then you, you could then contact and say, these are my products, we understand you're in the sector. We, we met at a trade show, I've been given your contact details by, by, by the consular in your, the British consulate in your market. Can we have a discussion about opportunities for my brand in your market? And just be dogged. Um, one of the other things is it's, you've got to bear in mind as a, as, a, as a manufacturer, with your domestic markets, it's very easy for your salespeople to phone up a customer and say, hey, I'm going to be passing your door on, on Wednesday week at about 11 o'clock. Can I pop in for half an hour just to run through a few things and show you some new products? And the customer will inevitably say, or invariably say, yeah, yeah, sure you can. You can't do that when your customer's sat in an office, even if it's only in Amsterdam. But, you know, you can imagine the, the, mm -hmm. the difficulties of dropping in on someone because you're passing in Shanghai or, or Sydney or <laughs> Las Vegas. It's, um, it's a little bit harder. So therefore, this whole gestation period and the whole lead time and development time and, and access to market is much, 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 much more long-winded. And it can take... You know, not just many months, but it can take many years until you finally, you know, something finally clicks because you've had that conversation three times with someone at a trade show or, or, or sent 20 emails over those three years before they finally say, you know what, I think we need to give this product a go. You know, it's um, he's been pushing us for three years. He's clearly in it for the long game. He's he's he's, he's built up that experience. I think we need to get on board with this with this brand now and um, take it from there. But patience, 
communication and market and product knowledge are probably key to, um, to, 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 to build an export market. David Hill, thank you from Kokoda. Thank you so much for your time and for your expertise there. It's, 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 it's just a joy, Kieran. You know, there, there's nothing more than an SME owner likes to do than, than talk about his own business and, and to speak with it very much, you know, with marketeers, because I, I like to view myself as a marketing rather than just another salesman is, is an absolute privilege. And it's, it's, it's been great fun. Thank you very, very much indeed. The Cambridge Marketing Podcast from Cambridge Marketing College, training marketing and PR professionals across the globe.